Businesses are different. Every business will have their own organizational culture. And it's important to understand that when you think about security culture as a business, you're really thinking about, okay, what's my organizational culture? What security culture will fit in here? And what is security culture I want to build, maintain, that matches my people, that matches our company values. And the better you can have a security culture aligned to your workforce, the better it will be and the better you'll have a chance of actually creating this culture. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Behave podcast. My name is Ben Donaldson, Community Engagement Manager here at CyberSafe, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jason Nurse, Director of Science and Research at CyberSafe. Jason is also currently an Associate Professor in Cybersecurity at the University of Kent. At CyberSafe, Dr. Nurse leads a team of behavioral scientists and researchers responsible for ensuring the company's product is grounded in scientific evidence and empowers users to make smarter security decisions and build better habits. Jason has spoken at venues across the world and has contributed to or featured in mainstream media such as the Wall Street Journal, BBC, Newsweek, and even Wired. Prior to CyberSafe, Dr. Nurse has engaged in research into human cyber risk, security behaviours, and cyber psychology at the University of Oxford and Warwick, with his PhD specifically focused on organisational cyber security. Jason, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to be here. Now, it's going to be a good episode. I think you are the first tribe member kind of outside site to have been invited on the podcast. So it's going to be an interesting one. Well, I, I feel I feel honored. I feel honored. Absolutely. No pressure. No pressure. Um, no, no pressure at all. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm seriously impressed at all the different media outlets you contributed to. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... When I look back at it, to be honest, I am, I'm very surprised I'm, and I'm humbled to have been able to contribute to such. I mean, I, I would have never, frankly, imagined that I would have written an article in the Wall Street Journal. I think for me, that's for me, that's the top, like the fact that I had that that opportunity to talk about the issue of sort of remote working risks that arise, um, security risks that arise during uh, remote working, the, the challenges that companies have to engage with that for me, you know, that was really exciting articles, super happy to, to write it. I'm really happy that it had a really good reception across the sort of business of financial industries in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And now we have you on the Behave podcast. Unreal. I am. Yes, yes. Believe it or not. Yay. Unreal. As is tradition, we're going straight into the pizza question. It's got to be. Ah, yes. It's got to be. Yes. This, is the, this is the most serious question of the day, I'm sure. 100%. 100%. So <laughs> you've got four toppings to choose from. What are they? This is really, really hard. But but to be honest, I just need two toppings. Okay. I think for me, for me, the, the pizza that I probably enjoy the most, caramelized onion and goat's cheese. Oh, I love it. Yes. Uh, and maybe, maybe if you want to add a third topping, maybe a bit of spinach, you know, you, you need to get your greens. Okay, yeah. You need to get your greens. Right? Totally. So that, that for me would be the greens. Um, but I would probably stop there. I mean, I really love, I really love the caramelized, uh, especially bread onion and goat's cheese pizza. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. And beautiful. We've had some wacky ones in the past that I've been like, hmm, I might might not try that. But actually, this one straight <laughs> up, just love. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. So perfect. good. Great. There's got to be a link somewhere. I, I remember actually once, I think I wrote, I asked ChatGPT to write me the link between pizza and security awareness. And it came up somewhere. Maybe I'll find it for a future episode um, because it kind of segues <laughs> quite nicely into the security awareness culture piece. Um but looking at culture and with your background and, and all the research and things that you've, you've been doing around um, cybersecurity and security in, in organizations, how would you define security culture? Hmm. Mm. It's, it's a really good question, especially to kick things off, because security culture is something that has been talked about for a very, very, very long time. Uh, initially, it was 
information security culture. And of course, these days we're very much in sort of the cybersecurity culture space. But for me, uh, sort of the key, the key components are, of it are related to norms, attitudes, behaviors of people within an organization as it relates to security. And those are different ways in which you might actually try to explain that. But for me, the essence really is what are people thinking about in the context of security? How do people feel about security? What are the values of people as, it, as they think about and uh, relate to security in organizations? And then, of course, what are the behaviors? So what do people actually do? Because, of course, there is the what you think, what you feel, uh, how you perceive things. But then, of course, on, on, the, on the back of that is how do you act? How do you behave as it relates to security? And for me, cybersecurity culture is, covers all of those all of those components. It's a newer thing. I feel that people are starting to maybe really understand and look at and try and measure it. But why is it important? Why has it suddenly become this thing that people really want to start paying attention to? Well, I think a lot of it relates to just, firstly, the, the number of attacks, the number of cyber attacks that are, are constantly bombarding organizations. You know, just just risen and risen. I mean, there was a massive jump during the pandemic when we had everyone sort of working from at home, working remotely. Attackers view it as sort of, you know, the best case scenario with all these people that are not really in the office. So their 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 mindset is not, I'm at work, I'm in the office. Their mindset is a bit different. And I think as a result of that, attackers have really started to launch more and more attacks. And organizations have stepped back and they've thought, okay, well. We need to get the technical measures in place to to prevent against these attacks. More and more organizations have started to think about, okay, but what about security culture? What's that? What does that mean? How does that factor in? Why culture is important really, really, really kind of consider the fact that culture in society is a, is a critical thing. Culture in society is an important thing. Culture in organizations is important as well. But no, cybersecurity culture is important because the, the general idea here is if we can get a really positive, really strong cybersecurity culture within an organization, it means that there's a higher likelihood that if the organization gets breached, that they can respond well, or of course, in the initial case, that they don't get breached at all. So it's really these, these two components. One, that the organization isn't breached because it has a really good, strong, uh, positive security culture. And then the other hand, if a breach does occur, then the organization, everyone knows what they need to do. Everyone has the right headspace. So those are probably some of the key components of why it's important. Looking at the kind of, I guess, preparedness of the organization as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess you could ask 20 different people and they'd have different opinions on what are the, the kind of like contributing elements to that. But is there like a top five elements of a strong security culture? Probably about a year or two ago now, um, I, I led a research team actually focused especially on this. We were, we're we noticed that there, there's you know, cybersecurity culture almost is a buzzword for some organizations. And what we were really interested in is, well, what's important? What are sort of the core ingredients? If you were baking a cake of, you know, the cybersecurity culture cake, what would be in that cake? What would be the key ingredients? And we, we found that things like leadership, leadership, extremely important. The number of times in organizations we've seen organizations talk about we need to have a positive security culture. We need to have a strong security culture. But, but that's, that, that, that's not coming from the top. That's coming from sort of middle management or below. And that has a ma massive impact because the leaders in the organization, the sort of the, you know, the, the, the higher the boards and, and so on in the organization, the executives, they are not acting in that way. So people actually look at them and say, well, if they're not doing it, why should I care? Why should I focus on it? But the organizations that we saw where uh, the leaders, the executives, they were actually, you know, the, the top management, they were really focused on positive security behavior. We saw that actually trickling down throughout the organization. So leadership is big, 
policies. Um, so it's really important for each organization to know what they're about and have the policies in place to actually communicate that to, to people, to communicate that to their employees, communicate that even to, to externals that actually engage with the organizations. Policies is important. Awareness and training, we can't ignore uh, fully, but awareness and training are important simply because people need to be made aware of what's important, what's good security practices, what knowledge do they need to have to make them more prepared in terms of how to respond if they say a phishing email or if an incident happens. So, so those are some of the key components. Probably the last one I'll mention really briefly that we, that we found in our research is this idea of sort of change and being able to manage change. So, so organizations are constantly changing, whether it's um, someone leaving and someone joining, if you think about the pandemic or people remote working, or if we think about even now, you know, the idea of um, Gen AI, so generative AI and, and how that's really changing how we think and how we work as organizations. All of these different changes are important, but we need to always think about the context of these changes, these, these different things. We need to think about them in the context of security culture and what might they mean for culture and what does culture mean for them? So those are probably why I would summarize as five main ingredients, leadership, policies, awareness, training, and sort of really thinking about change and, what, and what, what does that mean? So you obviously said there about some of the top five or so elements of a strong security culture, but people will build up their own view of cybersecurity culture. What are some common misconceptions when it comes to that? Yeah, that's a really good question as well, because the amount of misconceptions I see on, on security culture, especially now because some people are considering it as a bit of a buzzword. Um, probably one of the biggest ones is, you know, security awareness and training itself will bring a strong security culture. Or maybe we just need to get people thinking about security culture and, and then it will follow, it will magically appear. But, you know, the reality is that a lot of work and effort needs to be put into security culture and creating a security culture. One-off campaigns won't work. One-off campaigns forcing organizations won't work, focus on the, um, forcing people to kind of do training, you know, come and do this once a year, come and do this twice a year. Uh, and therefore a, a security culture will, a positive security culture will magically appear. In some ways, if you actually force people to do security um, awareness training, you're actually probably doing the opposite and people are gonna be more turned away from security. So our initial reading to think very carefully about what does security culture look like, what's important for them, and how do they properly think about building a, a strong positive culture that, that targets norms, behaviors, attitudes, uh, and different components such as that. And probably one other last one I'll mention just really briefly is uh, I've heard a number of people trying to say security culture looks like this. This is what your organization's security culture needs to look like. But the reality is that there's no single ideal security culture. Businesses are different. Every business will have their own organizational culture. And it's important to understand that when you think about security culture as a business, you're really thinking about, okay, what's my organizational culture? What security culture will fit in here? And what is security culture I want to build, maintain, that matches my people, that matches our company values. And, and the better you can have a security culture aligning to your workforce, aligning to organizations, the better it will be and the better you'll have a chance of actually creating this culture uh, and uh, sort of nurturing it over a period of time. And it makes it more relevant. It's, it's, yeah, and, and you will find, and I know this is the case in so many places, even at CyberSafe, there are different cultures in different teams. When indeed, you multiply indeed. that by a company that's got 50,000 employees, there will be big pockets that you need to understand and you need to, again, this is where Champions Network, I feel, yep. comes into Perfect. play. But looking at that from a, you need to have the people who really understand it to be able to then go, you know what, this will land really well here, actually with this group. 
it might not be the best approach. Actually, I would take this approach. So it's, yeah, it's a massive thing to consider for sure. Yep, yep, definitely something to think about very carefully, get the right people in play, get the champions, get the experts in. Um, it's really important to think about this properly and not just assume that it's magically going to appear. Is there an element of acceptance of change? Because like you say, advice on certain things, on passwords has changed drastically in the last yeah. kind of 10 yeah, years. Yeah. MFA, getting that rolled out, I guess like a, an acceptance or a tolerance of change and being able to accept it again, I guess contributes there quite, quite majorly from yes, being able to be like, right, this was the advice, but it's now this because it does yeah. change. The attack vectors change, criminals change their approach to how they attack people. And I guess that wraps into that whole kind of change piece and understanding it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you, you've, you, you've hit the nail on its head from the perspective that attackers are constantly changing. From our perspective and thinking about preventative, preventive measures, think about reactive measures, we need to think, how can we change as well uh, in the context of secured culture, in the context of organizations? Um, how can we change to prevent those attacks? Or how can we change to respond to those attacks? I mean, your example is also perfect. And this is thinking about, you know, passwords are, you know, one of the best examples. I have tracked guidance on passwords for the last mm -hmm. 10, 15 years. Right. I remember sort of, you know, lecturing in sort of my, my associate professor role and, and lecturing many years ago and selling, telling students things like, you know, you have to have as complex password as possible. This is the guidance now because you need to start attackers from breaking in. Don't write it down because we, we can't do that because someone might get the post-it notes, someone might get the handbook, whatever it is. And also, you know, choose a password as complex as possible. Get as many random characters and so on, and you just have to remember it. You know, that was the guidance 10, 15 years ago. No, it's very much a case of understanding that actually the way our mind works, we can't remember super random passwords. That's, that's just not it. And what we need to be more thinking about is we need to be starting at the individual and understanding individuals, where they're coming from, and in sort of creating security solutions around that. Mm -hmm. And when we think about passwords, that's why the guidance now, so in CSC, the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK, their guidance is three random words. So think about three random words. So dog, tree, uh, tractor, or something like this. The really interesting there is that they're random. So of course, if an attacker was trying to guess them, the attacker might not put those three words together. Also the fact that because it's three words, they're actually long. So maybe it might be at least 12 characters or so long, which is sort of, you know, generally speaking, um, it's recommended guidance. So this is how things change. And being acceptable of that change is really important simply because attackers will change and defenders need to change as well. A very interesting point. I think we could have an entire podcast. On just, yeah, we probably could just, just talk about passwords. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, I read about Fido keys the other day and it blew my mind slightly and the, the work that they're doing about kind of trying to get rid of the password and the whole, but no, we're not. I think I think the whole the whole passwordless approach is interesting and you've, you've seen more and more companies actually trying it out, right? You know, big companies like Google, for example, I was watching a friend log into their system a couple weeks ago. Is that a pastime watching people log into things? Uh, no, it is not. Um, <laughs> I definitely, and, and, and they were aware that I was, sorry, let me just be super clear here. They were aware that I was watching uh, and they could not see their password. But when they went, when they put in their email address, I think the prompt that they got was not enter your password. The prompt that they got was a ping to their mobile phone, paid to their Android phone to say, is this you logging in? So that was interesting because password was not a lot of things. And they just said, oh, yep, that was me. And they just logged them in. And that's really interesting because what you see now is this, just like you mentioned this idea of multi-factor authentication, this idea of trying to move away from passwords. And, you know, we've seen it. I think Microsoft was one of the first to mention it, their plan to kill passwords, just because passwords 
have traditionally been one of the most difficult ways for people in terms of interaction with systems. Yeah, absolutely. Diving back into the culture, people want to be able to understand where they are. Like, for example, just joined a business and a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, they are in organizations or they've just started in organizations or they're just kind of coming around to the terms of understanding or they, they actually, I like, they might be actually well down the line with culture, but yeah. being able to be like, okay, well, where is my culture? Um, mm. And in previous roles, I'd have probably just been like, mm, well, okay, I think this is the approach that people have to cybersecurity. And you could be shocked either way. It could be really great, but you think it's really bad. Yeah. It could be really bad, but you think it's really great. How do people understand like where they're at? What, what's the baseline? What, what are some things you recommend? Yeah, so I think one of the key things here is to be able to measure um, your security culture. So, so security culture is definitely a complex thing. Um, it's multifaceted. It, it, there's very different components of it, but it is not completely unmeasurable. The tip that I would suggest for organizations in that regard is try to gain some understanding of what the security culture looks like. That can be done by trying to measure it to some extent. As I mentioned before, Culture is more than behaviors. It's, it's sort of perceptions, it's attitudes, it's values, it's knowledge. And all these things go into identifying what culture is. So in terms of actually measuring culture, I would suggest, for example, organizations think about, I generally think about subjective and objective measures. Mm -hmm. So from the subjective side, and subjective side is arguably what we see a lot of today. So for example, questionnaires or surveys asking people to, to rate or rank certain things or express their feelings about certain things. You can also engage in, especially if you're really interested in, in get, you, you know, you've start, just started a business uh, and you're really interested in getting to the bottom of security culture uh, and you really want to understand how to build a positive security culture. You might even decide to conduct some interviews, interviews with key people across the business, business just to touch base and to get some, some sort of key touch points of what the security culture might be or is like. To augment that, to, to, to add to that, one of the benefits now is that, you know, today we have you know, significant advances in data gathering, data analytics, in data metrics. And what I suggest here is this is where objective measures can play a key, key role. And the benefit of objective measures is that this isn't relying on self-report. This isn't relying on people to say how they're feeling, people to express their norms, people to express their behaviors. This is actually being able to monitor what individuals are doing on systems and being able to use that as a, as a way to, to measure their actual behavior and how, what they're actually thinking as it relates to uh, security culture. So one really good example of this is if we think about maybe someone locking their computer and you might ask someone in a self-report or a survey, how many times do you lock your computer? Do you lock your computer every time you leave it? You know, is it left idle at any point? And they might say yes. But if you were able to actually tap into the, uh, the machine and, uh, and monitor what they're actually doing, then you might see based on that, that they don't actually lack their computer all of the time, or they don't actually do different things all of all the time. And this data can be basically combined with the subjective data to be able to identify more objective measures for security culture. That's interesting. There's a little nice segue now into, we've spoken about the culture side and the measures around it, why it's important. The other aspect of everything we're trying to do at the moment is the behavior and risk element. Yeah. CyberSafe, along with many, many other people contributing to it. Um, we've obviously developed SEPDB, the Security yeah. Behaviour Database. We'd love for you to be the person that can kind of explain it, what it is, why does it exist? SEPDB is, is very close to my heart, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite, quite keen to talk about that one. So SEPDB is the world's most comprehensive security behaviour database. It, it's massive. It has over 100 security behaviours, and the primary aim of SEPDB 
is to provide a catalog of behaviors, a catalog of behaviors that anyone can pull upon because it's freely accessible, it's open to all, open to all vendors, for example. So it provides a, a comprehensive list of security behaviors that are known to reduce human cyber risk. So anyone that's interested in looking at reducing human cyber risk, you need this. You need to have a look at SEPTB. And one of the benefits is that SEPTB, in addition to providing a catalog of security behaviors, it also maps them to risk outcomes. And risk outcomes are essentially the things that businesses really care about. So they care about the malware, they care about a compromise. So all behaviors are mapped to a complete list of risk outcomes. And we've seen companies use it for a variety of different methods, a variety of different means. So definitely check it out. It's something that I've said before, if I'd had access to in different uh, roles, it would have made my life a lot easier. But its development over the last 24 months has been actually really amazing to watch and how we're now seeing organizations coming to us saying, hey, I started using SEPDB five, six months ago. Look at the program I've just built. Look at the impact I'm yeah. having. Look at the risks we're reducing. Look at the behaviors I'm addressing. Also, people coming to us for advice and saying, hey, I really want to target this risk. How can I use SEPDB and the behaviors in there to kind of do that? Because there's, there's, like you say, there's over 100 in there. If you try and do all, all 100 at the same time, <laughs> you get nowhere. Um, yeah, so so yeah, it, is, yeah. it is important. What value do you feel is the most attainable through using SEPDB, what can they get out of it? So I think there's there's various different things, but you're completely right in that there's lots of behaviors there. And you know, probably one thing to go in with is a sort of almost a clear head of what are you trying to achieve? Or, you know, what are you trying to get out of this? What I would say is that two of the big benefits here are SEPDB provides this very nice mapping between behaviors and risk outcomes. And some of the key questions that SEPDB could help organizations answer are, for example, which security behaviors will, will help manage a certain organizational risk? So let's say organizations are really worried about uh, ransomware. So ransomware, of course, is one of the top threat vectors now. Organizations can look at the malware risk uh, outcome, and they can look at all of the behaviors that link to that outcome and actually pursue those particular behaviors in their awareness campaigns, in their education campaigns, in their in their nudge campaigns. So all of that is, that, all that's sort of very, very appropriate. Another thing that, that SEPDB can do, or another question it can help organizations answer, which security behaviors should they prioritize? So another benefit, massive benefit of SEPDB is that we break the behaviors down into tiers. Now tiers are important because tiers allow organizations to understand which behaviors are gonna be, gonna have the most impact on reducing certain risk outcomes. So we don't only provide this very long list of behaviors, very comprehensive list of behaviors and, and you know, appropriate risk outcomes. But we also say, if you really care about addressing this behavior, or if you really care about addressing this risk outcome, here's a set of behaviors. And by the way, here is also those behaviors organized in tiers. So for example, target tier one, because tier one, a tier one security behavior will have the most impact on reducing a particular risk outcome. So those are sort of probably two of the, the key, um, use cases, so which security behaviors um, will help manage or best manage organizational risk, and which security behaviors should organizations try to prioritize? Those are probably two of the key use cases. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned it very briefly there, and I know for a fact that it is in tier one, is the malware ransomware piece. Mm. Um, I'm not surprised it was one of the examples you use. Why is it the thing that teams are focusing on at the moment, or pr probably should be focusing on at the moment? Yeah, I mean, completely. I mean, I don't think anyone can have a, a security podcast these days about talking about ransomware. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's the world we live in. It's substantial. And 
to be very frank, the reason for that is because CyberTask has existed for, for decades, right? Raspberry has existed for not that long. However, you know, it grabs all the headlines now. And the reason for that, one of the key reasons for that is because businesses, or for everything else, care about business interruption. Anything that can stop the business from operating for any extended period of time, priority, top, top tier risk, right? Now, cyber attacks of the past, what attackers would traditionally try to do is compromise an organization and maybe grab some data, maybe try to grab some finances, and then that sort of it. What Ransomware has done, which is really, really worrying for organizations, is it is a cyber attack that can cripple an organization and therefore can significantly impact business interruption. And it can cause an organization to be offline for hours, days, weeks. There's still many organizations that, you know, that have struggled and that are struggling with the fact that they can't recover because of uh, a ransomware attack. And on top of that, the number of ransomware attackers has risen significantly. Uh, ransomware as a service has arisen as, as, a, as a key threat. So it's not only now that um, ransomware attackers are, are acting alone. Ransomware groups are creating ransomware and then licensing it to other companies, to other people, and they're using their ransomware. It's really a software as a service. So now you have so many threat actors with access to ransomware tools, technologies, it makes a real nightmare for businesses. There's no, I guess, exact place you can pin it back to or kind of, and every attack is usually quite different in nature. Um, and yet you see them crop up all the time. Obviously, there was quite a big breach a few weeks ago, which was, was still, I guess, only just scraping the surface of understanding. Yeah. You recently wrote a fantastic paper on ransomware, which I oh, did actually, I did look at. And you formed a proposal of a kind of new robust, um, I guess, methodology of modeling harms for ransomware related incidents. Mm. Would love you to kind of, you will do a way better job of summarizing it than I will, <laughs> um, but would love you to just kind of quickly run through that. Okay, thanks. Uh, you're way too modest, uh, but thank you very much for your compliment. A lot of that research basically stemmed from the fact that what we were seeing in many, many businesses was, or, or actually it's in, in many organizations more generally, is a, a significant focus on the financial impact, the financial harms from ransomware attacks. But for us, what we recognize quite quickly is that organizations are impacted non-financially as well, and often quite significantly non-financially. So for example, the number of ransomware attacks that have caused hospitals to be offline, that have schools offline, um, that have impacted even the colonial pipeline attack, ransomware attack in the US, uh, that caused uh, a major gas pipeline to be shut down for a period of time. So the number of harms there is significant. So essentially what we aim to do was to develop a methodology, develop an approach to be able to firstly define the, the various types of harms that exist. So the various types of negative impacts that can exist or that can emerge from ransomware attacks. And then two, understand how they relate to each other. So for example, you know, what we found was one really good example is that when a server is offline because of a ransomware attack, that might mean that another system is offline or another service is unable to, to occur. Uh, really good examples of this, for example, if we, if we think about any of the ransomware attacks targeting healthcare systems, a server offline at a hospital may mean that someone can't be treated. It may mean that um, someone's health records can't be accessed. It may mean, if you look, if you even if we cast our minds back to the ransomware attack on the NHS many, many years ago, that meant that people's operations had to be cancelled. There's so many different forms of a, a propagated harms that can occur from ransomware attacks. We try to list and, and define all of those. And we essentially try to pull it all together 
into a very sort of, in some ways simple, but in some ways complex model in which we could say, here are the, rare, the variety of harms that could occur and here's how those harms relate to each other. And the goal here is to provide this methodology, to provide this harm, this harm modeling approach that could then be shared with organizations, it can be shared with governments to better understand and better prepare for all of the kind of horrible things that could potentially occur off the back of ransomware attacks. That's really fascinating. I think it's a it's an aspect that a few people perhaps consider is, okay, well, what are the knock-on effects? Like, yes, mm. you hear about systems getting shut down, things being switched off, people losing access to certain things, but what does that then mean for, for other things? I think the, the other angle for this from a personal perspective and something that has landed quite well, but I'd be interesting to know if any studies have been done on it. And, and looking at ransomware in specific again mm. is, okay, a small, uh, somebody pays a scam or a fine, or they kind of they think that their laptop has actually had ransomware on it or spy or whatever yeah. it is, they pay for that. And you see big organizations, and I'm not going to name any names, often <laughs> paying off ransom. Yeah, yeah. A, it's illegal in most countries. How much of the money made from cybercrime is actually pumped into many, many other forms of crime, child exploitation, yeah. uh, guns, drugs, human trafficking. Yeah. I think people don't necessarily draw that link. And I was giving blood uh, about last week and I was speaking to the, the nurse who was doing the, the, the blood donation for me and said, oh, but it's, you very rarely considered that link between them, um, which is really interesting. You're completely right. And this is a very, very, you know, clearly very, very contentious topic. When it comes to, to ransomware payments, you, you know, you're right in that many organizations have paid for many, many, many years, actually, many organizations have paid and they've paid because they've been very worried about um, what to do because their systems are impacted. They can't do anything and they have decided, okay, our only option is to pay. The various governments have, of course, started to clamp down payments as much as they can. But the way how some governments have approached it is to basically say, we recommend that you not pay. But in particular, you better not pay to an organization that's found out to be, for example, a terrorist organization or has links to terrorism. And I think this is, this is where we see um, cyber insurance coming into play because many businesses, they don't have the 2 million just sat in the bank account to just pay uh, an attacker. But many businesses have cyber insurance policies. And the way how cyber insurance or, or some cyber insurance policies work is that they have ransomware coverage and that they could cover a payment if a, if a payment had to be made. But what we're seeing is that insurers play an interesting role here because insurers are often the ones that would check to see or, or that would actually handle the engagement with the attacker or, or hire another organization to handle the engagement with the, the ransomware operator. And then also that, that, the, that insurer would be the one that checks to see that the ransomware operator isn't on sort of sanctions list or so on. Because the average organization doesn't know things like this. The average organization will just do a payment, but the insurer will be the one that will check various lists that will determine whether they want to reimburse the payment, et cetera. So it, it's, there's a really, really interesting dynamic. Uh, yeah, and it's definitely one I want to dive into in a little bit more depth, the, the kind of the thing I'm thinking of, taking it to a more personal level, we have car insurance, we have insurance against like, like dropping your iPhone and smashing the screen or home insurance, some goods up to a certain value within the home. This is obviously now something we are seeing from a cyber insurance perspective. But for car insurance, you are assessed kind of, have you had any accidents in the last year? Mm. Um, who else is driving the car? How often do you drive it? Where is it kept at night? These insurance companies will look at your cybersecurity posture. They will, indeed. What will they look at? How will they assess it? 
are there things that an organization can do to potentially like, I don't know, if I have been driving for 15 years and never had an incident, never had a car crash, never had a speeding ticket, my insurance premium is going to go down. Is that the same for insurance policies? Yes, generally speaking, it is. Um, probably one of the biggest difference, though, if the insurance industry, which is just a slight caveat to this, is the insurance industry is still very uh, young in the context of other industries. So insurers don't yet know how to really, really perfectly price cyber insurance, which makes, of course, this question of insurance going down versus going up still, still up for debate. Um, but you're completely right from the perspective that a good security posture definitely helps helps you get a policy first and it helps you in terms of premium negotiation and this is sort of really key because time and time so once again another hat on work a lot with insurance companies and try to understand how insurance companies and security works really well together and what we see there is insurers as they always are are keen to take on risk and, and that's their whole purpose right insurers are there to take on residual risk but the key word here is residual risk so if we go back to your your example, if we look at house insurance or home insurance, when you call up your, your, your home insurance company to say, hey, I'd like to buy some home insurance, they're not going to say, yeah, sure, no problem, sign here and here's your premium. First question, they're going to ask a bunch of questions. One is going to be, do you have locks on your door? Do you have locks on your windows? Do you have an alarm system at your home? Do you, where do you live? You know, do you live in a dodgy area? And, and these are questions that they'll ask. And the same for the cyber insurer. And the aim will be that they want to know, do you have good security in place? What security awareness and training uh, approaches do you do you subscribe to? How good or bad is your human cyber risk? And they'll use your answers to these questions to, to determine, A, whether they want to give you a premium, and then two, the price of the premium. But really, they really care about residual risk. They want to come in only in this case where all of your other risk mechanisms fail, all your other controls fail, so therefore you need to call upon insurance. Yeah, and if you can prove reduction in risk over time or prove the behaviors that are particularly risky or you have a an understanding of what your risk posture is from a yep. human cyber risk perspective, it just gives you a better standpoint in-, in It in, definitely okay. does. Okay. Definitely does. Because for them, the key thing is always understanding risk as much as possible. And if a, if a business can demonstrate that they understand the risk and here is what the risk is, and here, over a period of time, here is how the risk it has been reduced because of what we're doing. Insurers are going to love that because for them, you're a better risk. So they're definitely going to take you as opposed to someone else who's not as good a risk. Interesting. So there it is. The lower the risk, the better the, the, the insurance. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious when it stares you in the face, right? Um, it, it, it is. I know. I know. Jason, thank you very much for coming on. Um, Pleasure. It's been super interesting and I'm sure there will be an episode two. I'm sure of it because we could dive into about... Very happy to come back. Even just to talk about passwords. Yeah, we could dive into 90% of the things that we've talked about um, if we had a bit more time. But no, thank you very much for being on. That's it for today's episode. If you'd like to find out more about CybSafe and a number of other resources, including SEPDB, head to www.cybsafe.com and we will see you next time. So you obviously said there about some of the